Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books to art to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is the hair colourist Josh Wood. Fresh out of school, Josh started out as a hairstylist at Vidal Sassoon Salons in Leeds and London, before working with Sassoon himself in New York and then moving back to the UK to set up his own business. Famed for his innovative use of colour, he has worked with the likes of David Bowie, PJ Harvey and Elle McPherson, as well as with fashion designers Mucha Prada, Donatella Versace and Marc Jacobs. I sat down with Josh to reminisce about his career and to hear about some of the things that inspire him. Hi Josh. Hi. Thank you for coming on to our podcast for Matches Fashion. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. You've been here before to Five Carlos Play. <laughs> yes. What were you here for? Was it? Um, Always like to know well, what, what brought people in. Don't judge me, but quite, quite a bit of shopping. Oh, right. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's lovely to have you on, and you're a hair colourist, of course, as everyone, as everyone knows. Um, you've done, you've just done, I think you did the new Versace campaign. I did, just out now. Is it the one with, well, you tell me about it. Um, I was actually in New York doing another job, um, and I got a call from Guido, who I colour hair for quite a lot, Guido Palau, and uh, Stephen Mizell had commissioned... Uh, him to create a pop band or a rock band um, of which I didn't know at the time but Donatella was actually going to be doing the drums so it wasn't until we got to the set in Bushwick or some place that I'd never been to before uh, that I realised I saw it all come together because we each each of the subjects that arrived each of the models that arrived um, we kind of had to meet them first to really figure out how we could characterise them into this uh, like you know, like or transform them into uh, somebody that could look like they were in some kind of new wave pop band. Um, and you've done a lot of that sort of high fashion um, designer collaboration. You also did Mark Jacobs' mm-hmm. um, spring summer show where yeah. he used, I think, it was forty different models yeah, yeah. that you flew out to New York and dyed each of their each model with a different hair color. Yeah. Um, what was it like working with Mark Jacobs? I mean, I've worked with Mark for a few seasons um, and I've, you know I guess I've known him for a long period of time I mean he's such a um, he's such a kind of like like designs in him you know sometimes I work with people and they, they've, they've got a really good vision they're, they're more stylists or um, you know they're great technicians but he's like a really proper designer there's ev- every single part of the process is really really clearly thought through and Katie Grand Styling, who I work with. Um, I mean, he's it's, 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 it's quite a taskmaster because he's got a real eye for colour, which sometimes you do want and you don't want in the same breath. Um, and we were matching hair colour to the fabrics of the outfits, but of course the outfits weren't made. Right. So it was cool. So what was his brief? He was like, I've got... Was, was it always his idea to have a different colour for each look? Or was yeah, I mean, he, wanted, he wanted everybody to be a very unusual kind of pastel colour. Um, 
and it was you know I mean his brief to me was he wanted something that looked really uh, looked heritage it didn't look like St Mark's Place or Camden Market it, it looked sophisticated and I think in a way it was about bringing that what people think is kind of youth culture in hair colour like pinks or greens and making it super sophisticated so anybody could wear it um, but it was yeah I mean the first few the first ten there was a lot of kind of backwards and forwards and a a little bit more grey or a little bit more O'Donnell or a little bit more pale blue. But then when we kind of cracked it and we knew what we were doing, then we just cracked on. We had four or five days of doing, I think it was 45 girls in the end. It must have been amazing. And the girls must have loved it as well. Yeah, I mean, it was really unusual because normally, I mean, you know, if that would have been five years ago, you're basically on your bended knees begging the agents to let you colour somebody's hair. And I mean, there'd been a complete role reversal. The agents were begging us to colour their talent. So what's that shifting? Because you also did Mary Katranzu's mm-hmm. show. Um, was that spring summer as that well? That was spring summer, yeah. Spring summer nineteen. Yeah. Um, and for that, you did. It was even pushing out even further yeah. in terms of those sort of what I call like you know like unicorn rainbow yeah. colours, and I think you called it Horizon, which was a really evocative, lovely name. Um, what's that shift? Why, why has there been that shift from <laughs> really not models question. not wanting to dye their hair to suddenly all wanting colourful? Well, I, I think you know, going back to what we said at the start, you know, like the, the Versace campaign. You know, a lot of the talent today um, can be easily forgotten. You know, it, there's a there's a, there's a there's a, a, a real way, let's say, in the '90s, where everybody had a ponytail, or ev- you know, everybody had to look exactly the same. And I think today, designers are really looking to own somebody's um, looks. I mean, if you if you bleach somebody's hair or you cut somebody's hair off, they're wearing it in multiple shows. Generally, it's not just for one look. Um, and I think that permanent, the feeling of the, the, the certainly the hair colour beauty look is more permanent than just for one show, um, as is really the current vogue. And I think also the girls really identify with the fact that that transformation can make them stand out in a way that they wouldn't have stood out before. Yeah. You know, we went through a long period of time of, you know, post-grunge of things being natural and everybody looking like, you know, a supermodel that has never been touched to this kind of almost like going back to the 80s where hair colour is self-expression so you know you, you're not going to be judged for having green hair and piercings or tattooing and and I think um, that really was the starting point for um, this kind of almost this explosion of people feeling that their personal image is an extension of kind of how they feel and who they are. Hmm. Yeah that's nice as an idea isn't it. Um, what about your the things that you want to talk about for your podcast, for your cabinet objects. Mm, I mean, I hope it's a big cabinet. It is actually. It's pretty large. <laughs> it was I mean, so hard. Somebody wanted to put a car in once, and we couldn't accommodate that. Yeah. But it's, I would say, it's about ten feet tall. Mm. I haven't actually measured it, um, but yeah, we can fit stuff in. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite an eclectic um, group of five things. I found I found it so hard. I mean, maybe as one gets older, it's harder to narrow and narrow things down. So I was listening to, you know, the amazing podcasts that you've done before, and p- people were really kind of decisive, and I found it, I really struggled. <laughs> so unfortunately, there's a couple of them that are, is a group of things. Yeah. But, um, you know, I feel so fortunate, you know, to have, have worked in this kind of creative, creative discipline that I've been in for nearly 30 years. Um, and each day, you know, I sometimes I have to pinch myself, like, you know, doing a Versace campaign or... So I work with really creative people. Um, so 
these a couple of these are kind of quite milestoney things for me and, and and other ones are like what i'm finding inspiration from at the moment so i guess number one and a, a, a long-term um source of inspiration for me is francis bacon especially the portraiture of of george dyer his his then partner um i mean it's hard to say you know I relate to Francis Bacon's work in a way because, um, you know, he was totally untrained, he couldn't draw, and everything had to be uh, conjured up from memory or imagination. And quite often I find, in my career, I found myself in that situation. Um, You know, as a colourist, you you didn't get a chance to be in the fashion world for, you know, certainly the first 10, 10 to 15 years of my my career. I'm, you know, salon colourist, I was there five days a week many clients as I could do um, you know I still you know I have my salon my atelier in London now and I still work there a couple of days a week but I think being a craftsman um, and, a, and a craft that ha- the, the the process of evolution of creativity has to change otherwise you become uh, dated or obsolete or, or, or not current um, you know for me Francis Bacon's work I think because it, it was uh, it was torture, I think, for him to put down on canvas what he did. I'm not saying it's torture for me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really can relate to that kind of always having to feel or express oneself in a way that you may be, you know, you know I wasn't particularly formally educated. Um, you know, I grew up in a very different environment than what I work in today. So just that way that one puts oneself out there and is willing to absorb creativity, which is what I perceive Francis Bacon was about. I, it's really been an incredible source of learning for me, learning about him, his private life, his work. And then I, 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 the, the icing on the cake, I, a couple of years ago, I went to Dublin to look at his... Uh, they, they, they uplifted his studio from a muse house in South Kensington and put it into a gallery in Dublin. And um, I went to look at it, and it was... Absol- I mean, I'd seen pictures of it, but it was absolute chaos. Is that with all the painting? Yeah, paint I mean, on the it's it, it, it's just beyond the paint on the wall. It's everything. It's like the bits of food, or the cans, or the wine bottles, or the uh, you know. I just, I it, for me, it felt like one could be looking inside his, his head, in the way that it all those loose ends somewhere along the line came together and ended up on a piece of canvas. And quite often, I. I, my, I I'm referencing all the time in my work, and I've uh, my assistant, poor Paul, um, is constantly. I'm constantly saying to him, "I need this. I'll find that." And I say to him first thing in the morning. I say, "Okay, I'm not going to start with the needle in the haystack first thing in the morning. <laughs> I'll let you get a coffee first. But it does feel very much like pulling together some of the visions and ideas that I have to work with is, and it's a never-ending kind of unraveling that kind of ball of string. Do you remember the first time you saw Francis Bacon in um, real life? Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw them very succinctly um, between each other. I'm very fortunate. I saw one at the Tate, and then I went to do a private client's uh, hair at home, and there was one there, and it was in a dining room, and it was a triptych. And it kind of like, it, it like hit me like a bolt out of the blue. Especially seeing it in a private environment because they're pretty extreme to see in somebody's home. It's yeah. pretty arresting. So you already mentioned how um, when you were that you that your upbringing was very different to where you are mm-hmm. now. So um, you grew up in Barnsley. I did Yorkshire. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a council flat. Uh, my father died when I was very young, when I was five. So I was brought up just by my mum. I mean, you know, it, the mid to late 80s is my formative years. It was pretty tough. Minor strike. Um, you know, fashion hadn't reached that little corner of South Yorkshire at that moment. Were you into music? Yeah, I mean, I, I was into anything I could get my hands on that was would take me away or out of that scenario. So I'd go to Sheffield to the Lead Mill and Human League. and But the, again, there was... Um, it wasn't really until I, I, I got my first job in hairdressing. So I, I left school and was went to art college, but left very, very quickly. Where was the art college? Uh, it was in Barnsley. It was a, like a foundation course. Um, and then I got a job in a salon sweeping up on a Saturday. And it just, I think, although I wasn't particularly um, aware of it at the time, I just slotted in. And I think there was, you know, coming to terms with sexuality being in a, in a salon environment, experimentation. I, I don't know, there was just that moment where I thought I can thrive here and maybe thrive beyond just the skill set. And then um, I was doing this thing called a, a youth training scheme, which basically was a, a government-run scheme. You got paid, I don't know, 27 quid a week or something. And uh, it was it was really, I think, to inst- uh, re-instill uh, skills and crafts into the into the education process rather than lots of people going to college. So I, the minute I knew that um, the salon was for me, they, the, the, the salon that I was working in Barnsley uh, said, OK, you've done your year and we really don't think hairdressing's for you. Oh, out, really? out the door I went, right. yeah. Um, and I, and at that, there's been a lot of those, maybe not as kind of as pointed as that, but there's been, there's been a, quite a few blocks in, in what's been a, nearly a 30-year career. But uh, I thought to myself, OK, I know I can do it. I know I fit in. So I went and got a job at Vidal Sassoon in Leeds. And that was the moment where I th- it became the difference between, you know, kind of survival and creativity and a job and a career. Um, so I moved to Leeds. And then I, I was only um, at Vidal Sassoon in Leeds for about, probably about eight or nine months. And they said, a position's come available in, in London, so. Had you always wanted to go to London? Was I'd that never, I'd been to London on a school trip. That was it. I'd never thought about it. I didn't really get it. I didn't understand. So I just, I didn't understand the opportunity. I d- did not understand at all. So I just, you know, got on the bus. 19? Yeah, like, yeah, 19, nearly 20. And I hated it did when you? I got here. I <laughs> Why? hated it. People talked a different language, and like I was working in Sloane Street, and it was it felt really really alien. Um, so I've just worked really hard, kept my head down, got on with it, and then I moved. After about eighteen months, I moved from Sloane Street and worked in South Moulton Street, just around the corner from here. And again, that was another very pivotal moment because South Moulton Street had Bazaar and it had the Azadina Liar Boutique and it had Browns and it had it was a different thing and and it it felt more. It felt less ritzy and a bit more kind of creative. Um, yeah, that was it. And did at some point you start working with the actual Vidal Sassoon, the man? I mean, I, uh, he had was already he sold the company right. and moved on by then. But I did, over my time there, I was there for 12 years, I did work mm. with him and, and I knew him and I knew his, his then wife, Ronnie, quite well. And yeah. And was that where you first started doing colour or was that something no that I, I've later? always done colour no I started colouring leads I mean if that's one 
saving grace, choosing to do colour, you know, there weren't many colourists, there certainly weren't any male colourists. You know, I, I, it was, it was really, I mean, it's pretty niche now, but it was really niche then. Because Vidal Sassoon is so iconic when you think of the hair cuts. Yeah. How did that fit in, the cut of the colour fit into what he was doing cut-wise? Yeah, I mean, it always had a very integral part to everything that he did. He, he, you know, he was a really true artist. He always, he never thought of hair in one dimension. So, um, yeah, it was always there. And there was a couple of people that had been, you know, colouring hair for a long time that were there that were very profound at, at what they did and they taught me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't really have a great deal of choice because I'd been assisting, the first time I worked in the fashion world, I was assisting this guy that was what we would now call a session stylist. I mean, they didn't exist then. These were just people that did hair on photo shoots. Um, and I was trying to blow dry and he said to me, have, you know, have you, are you doing colour at the moment? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, you know, are you good at it? I said, yeah, I'm okay. He said, I really think you should focus on it. And I was like, why? He was like, you're really crap at blow drying. <laughs> and I mean, with that, you know, nugget of career advice, I moved <laughs> that's, forward. That's such an English thing to <laughs> give an underhand compliment like that. Um, what else is going in your cabinet? Um, well, I'm not a great big jewellery person. In fact, I've got no jewellery at all, really, apart from uh, a wedding band. But um, I've got this Panerai uh, Luminar watch, 1950, that was originally bought uh, for me as a gift in 2005 by my then uh, partner, my now husband. Um, and he bought it for me on the day that we decided we were going to have our civil partnership. Um, it's an, there's a bit of a... So that was 2005 when the, when the law changed. Um, and then we've actually, we actually just this year are celebrating 10 years of having a civil partnership. But the watch got stolen. Very, uh, it went in a nanosecond. I was somewhere on holiday and it vanished and it went. And so that was the end of it. Um, and then uh, last year for my 50th birthday, he re-bought me the exactly same watch. Oh, bless. Yeah. Um, so it has huge sentimental value. Yeah. Um, but also as well, I, I love the kind of quite, it's quite straightforward. I'm not, you know, I'm not kind of a jazzy kind of too much jewellery going on. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a man's watch. Yeah, it's pretty hefty. Yeah. They're hefty, those Panerai. It looks, looks lovely. And though. it's water resistant as I'm, you know, kind of in water, waterproof as oh, I'm yeah, of 90% of the time. Yeah, so you wear it while you're working. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. Um, and I have to ask, what about David Bowie? Because everything yeah. I read about you, David Bowie's mentioned in the first line. <laughs> <laughs> there was a shop called Anthony Price that was on the corner of uh, South Malton Street and Brook Street. And um, there was a guy that worked in there. And one day he said to me, um, you, know, you know, can you come and talk to somebody about colouring their hair? And I went into the store and Iman was in the store. Um, and I'd, I'd met David before that, actually, um, through, you know, another client of mine. Uh, but it was th that moment that I kind of started to work with him and colouring his hair. Um, I knew Iman very well. And then he did Earthlings, the album, and it was that at that moment that I turned him red again, that kind of, that Ziggy red. Is yeah. that what he said he wanted? Was that No, it was a process. It was, we were working with uh, Lee McQueen. He did that very famous Union Jack frock coat, um, and it was it was actually it was interesting because the cover was just the back of him, so you couldn't see his face, and there was a bit of the when we when we realised it was going to be the back that there had to be something that kind of 
you kind of knew it was David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> so the red hair, I guess, was the thing that really led you to kind of recognise him from the back of his hair, yeah. rather than seeing his face. Yeah. But yeah, it was a you know was a very very good friend and very uh, very dear and very supportive. Mm. Did he die, when he wasn't having his hair dyed for an album cover at that stage in his life? Was he dyeing his hair as a matter of course? Or was yes, he a yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah I mean, there was a yeah long period of time we did highlights and we did him a bit yeah. blonde and a bit surfery and it grew yeah. a bit and yeah, it was it was a uh, the 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 hair color was very much part of the whole kind of the look and feel that he wanted to to create. <laughs> now I know. David Bowie. What and what is interesting with men and hair colour, isn't it? Because um, you know you think of colourists and people colouring their hair, and it traditionally tends to be women. Mm-hmm. Um, but you well, not actually as well, much not. as you would think. Okay, so tell me about that because I think that's quite an interesting thing. And is it something that's changed? Is it are more men getting their hair dyed no. now, or is it? I, I think that there's really two camps. There's a guy that is colouring his hair not to be grey. Um, and, and, you know, I think in the UK, he gets a really, really bad rap. Uh, we only ever talk about the colours that don't look good. We never talk about the guys that have actually got their hair coloured and it looks amazing. I guess you don't know. It's, it's those, yeah. those, those colours that, you know, you, that look so believable you, would, you wouldn't uh, necessarily question it. Um, and then there's another group of guys that are really colouring their hair to look coloured. Uh, but, yeah, I think... I do both. I do people that want to look natural and people that don't want to look natural. But it's exactly the same medium as it is for colouring women's hair. I mean, I work a lot in India and China. Everybody colours their hair there. You know, you, you, look, you, know, you can walk in the street and think, oh, nobody has grey hair in Beijing. Of course they do, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty heavily coloured and covered. Is it culturally more of an acceptable thing yes. there than it is? So you're talking about the UK when you say yeah. we, or are you talking about like Western Europe? Well, there? I think I think Western Europe, are, are, on the whole, gives guys that don't get the right colour a pretty a pretty bad rap. Um, is it something that you see changing? Yes. And definitely. why do you think it's changing? Um, because I think it's there's less stigma about somebody that doesn't want to be grey, and you know, kind of the things that I do today, or, or you know, the products that I make are much more contemporary. They can be a little bit transparent. They don't colour all the grey hair. Um, and I, I don't know. I think this for me. I think you know, certainly when I'm formulating a product, uh, you know, I'm, I, of course I'm looking at the end result, but I'm also looking at how I can liberate somebody from something that they don't feel suits them or looks great on them. Mm. So yeah, there's still a lot more work to do, but I think. Um, you know, having a direct conversation with anybody that wants to colour their hair and, and, and get it looking right is what, what really, what I'm about. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, what else for your cabinet? Okay, so this is a group, unfortunately, this one, but I, I've been obsessed for years about um, author, in, interwar authors. Um, Evelyn War, Virginia Woolf, George Orwell, you know, there's something about that period where there was a, I, fe- I mean, I mean, I, I wasn't there, of course, but I, f- I really f- connect and feel that there was a liberation happening. People could say things, people could write things, people could do things that they couldn't pre the First World War. Um, and I go back to that period and I go back to those authors. Um, you know, when I was trying to think of a book, literally, we'd have needed a room this size as a cabinet because I because I travel so much, I read a lot. Um, but that period, really, again, a bit like the, I, I guess, the kind of expression that um, 
I felt from Francis Bacon, I really find interwar authors are talking a very, very different language. Mm. And it, I, I can really relate to it somehow. It's a bit like the that experimentation or not quite fitting in or being the odd one out. Um, yeah, really resonates with me. Do you enjoy the travel? Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't enjoy the airports. <laughs> Uh, but I enjoy the I, I enjoy the experiences that I have. You mentioned the eighties. What was the nineties like for her? You, you, you mentioned how everyone had a ponytail. Was it quite unimagined? You know, no, it was I mean, my eighties culture. Was yeah. it quite boring? I mean, I mean, it was a, it was really interesting to move from a skill set that had been like you know think of the most extreme hairstyle that you could possibly think of, with some of the brightest and ugliest hair colours that you could think of to go to nothing. You know, so again, that was a. That was a process for me, and I guess being in the right spot at the right moment, working with the right people, I learned very quickly. So again, I would imagine I was slightly ahead of the curve to know that it was, you know, it it was not really particularly chic to look like you tried too hard. Mm. And did you have you felt that you developed a sort of signature or an ethos to mm. or a look, or do you think you can just do whatever anyone wants or are there some things you're just like that's just not something I would no, do no you know this great age and been doing it this long I can do anything I, mean, <laughs> I can put my hand to anything really um, I think if there's one thing that maybe you know that I've I've been really fortunate to hone a skill it's really understanding what's coming next so I, you know I, I can really, I can get in the slipstream with the designers or if I'm working on a shoot or I can hear, you know, what somebody, you know, a client of mine was here last week and she lives in Lagos in Nigeria and I just, I can get that feeling. It's a bit like a cultural melting pot. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the skills of the laying on of hair colour, I can pretty do. That's really interesting. Pretty do what do you, what, in this moment, obviously it's really interesting in terms of what's happening in fashion, style, culture. Um, in terms of what's going on with diversity and mm-hmm. um, Me Too movement, what would you say? Do you have a feeling of where that's going? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what I see is there's a real desperation for individuality, um, and I think that's why there are some of those movements, quite rightly so, because people have felt that they couldn't express or they couldn't, they felt trapped or ring fenced and I think today it's about breaking out of those conforms and thinking this is who I am this is what I stand for and I want I want to be heard but I think also as well as I said before I really do believe you know hair color is much it's much more than a bad hair day you know you wear it every day and that there is there's something quite significant about um about changing your image to kind of have a kind of very strong statement. I just worked on the Prada show last season when it was that kind of black and white hair. And it was real, I mean, pardon the pun, but it was very polarizing. Some people hated it with a passion and then other people like felt it was so right in this moment. It was yeah. so right now. Wow, that's gotta be the dream in social media marketing is to do something that yeah, but you know, then, a reaction like that. You know, I, I always say to, you know, if I'm doing an interview after the show or something, or when I come back to the atelier, it's not like, you know, I've got droves of people beating down the way to Holland Park to have their hair tinted black. <laughs> it's not literal. It's just, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for me to say that things don't need to look natural, but they don't need to look pink or green. Or, there's different ways of expressing oneself if you want to make a big statement. What else is going into your cabinet? Okay, so this is a bit of a random one. Um, 
so I did a little, I worked for about a year or 18 months in New York um, in the 90s. So somebody bought me a gift voucher to go to a yoga studio in New York called Jiva Mukti Yoga. And, you know, off I went, you know, very much the kind of cynical Yorkshireman <laughs> thinking, it's not for me, this bending and breathing and huffing and puffing. Um, but actually, I think without Jiva Mukti Yoga, and I still practice today, uh, it's, that's been the antidote to a very extreme life that I live. Um, you know, a, a lot of my um, energy goes into the work and, and it has done for a long period of time. But really being able to, you know, somebody explained it to me really simply, you know, it was 60 minutes and there's 1.5 metres of mat. And in that 60 minutes, nobody can get on that mat. And there's no phones and there's no nothing. And there's, it's just for me. And, and actually what I've learned over the years is if I can get that little respite, that 60 minutes a day, and I try to do something every day, not necessarily just just jiva mukti yoga but if i can get that 60 minutes every day i can do anything it's when the work life takes over or the pressures of having a business or people's personalities that i am either work alongside or work with overtake um you know my day-to-day -day living it, it you know one can get quite worked up how are we going to represent that in the cabinet? Are we going to get your yoga mat in there? Can or? get a yoga mat. <laughs> There's a couple of pictures of me with my yoga teacher. Yeah. You can have that. And then what about Josh Wood today? So mm -hmm. you opened your salon that you have at the moment in Holland Park in West London. That was in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, you're a business person. Mm -hmm. Business, which obviously, like you said, must be incredibly stressful. You're a, you work with Redken. Mm -hmm. um, as a, is it your style director? Um, or Global creative director, if you global. don't mind. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, I knew I'd written it down somewhere. I couldn't remember it. Um, so yeah. So what's uh, for people who don't know about what you do now? Mm -hmm. Maybe explain about your own line of business and what you're doing. Um, yes. I mean, I've got my uh, my salon or atelier, as I like to call it, in in uh, Holland Park. It's closed door policy, so you have to ring a buzzer to get in. And I really opened that because I wanted to do something completely different from the way that we'd seen hairdressing salons exist before. So it's not big glass front, you can see nope. everyone who's inside. And it really started out like that. So if I wanted to shut shop for a couple of days and head off to do shows or whatever, I would, you know, I'd be able to do that. Um, that business started with six chairs. I've now got like 30 chairs. Uh, I mean, what was evident was there were lots of hairdressers that were looking for a similar kind of setup that I wanted, which was didn't want to work full time in one location. I needed a really strong team that could manage my diary, both from a fashion perspective and from a working in a salon. That's that's always been the biggest nightmare for salons. Um, you know, you've, you, you know, you want somebody there five days a week and yeah. the clients want somebody there five days a week. So that's that process of developing that um, the bookers and the front of house team uh, was quite new when I first did it. Um, it's a it's a kind of it's a crazy place. I mean, it looks much it looks tiny from the outside. And it's massive when you get in. I mean, you've been there. You've seen the kind of craziness of it. Yeah, eighty people there, each one madder than the next, madder than me. <laughs> uh, you talking about your staff? Yes, <laughs> all I, the clients. Uh, <laughs> no. well, let's just let's just stay with the the, the, the staff for now. Um, I love working with really creative people. Um, I think having a di having two or three different creative disciplines 
um, in, in, in your working life, you know, working on private clients or doing shows. Or I've got one girl that just does music videos. I think that just adds so much richness to, you know, working in a salon. What, what can be quite, it can become quite a utility. Um, and a year ago, I launched uh, my product range, Joshwood Colour. Uh, that's primarily in boots, but it's also a, a direct-to-consumer business. And that's interesting as mm-hmm. an idea, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. that's quite controversial. Yes. Yeah. You explain why that is. Uh, I mean, there is permanent hair colour within that range, um, you know, and the market has been so divided between salon use and at-home use. Uh, but I really, a from a time perspective, finance perspective financial perspective, sorry, and um, just democratising expert information to anybody that needs it or wants it. I have, you know, I guess, you know, kind of broken every rule in a way that I have all my life been a salon hairdresser and now I've got a colour that you can use at home. Um, But I I choose to look at it from a very different perspective um, because I think all of the avenues that one can access hair colour have been over the years come from very big organisations that have used very very extreme marketing in two different camps to uh, you know never let the oil and water even get near each other to try and mix Um, and I want to stop that and I want to change that conversation Um, you know as I say I've been colouring hair for nearly 30 years and I really believe that that expertise and that knowledge is the value that I have. And I want to share that with anybody that wants to colour their hair. What's your last object? Well, this object, um, I mean, I've worked extensively in the, in the music industry, uh, you know, because of, you know, working, you know, with kind of people in the past. And, and this is something of, of more of today than of, of history, but I love music. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons that I love Jiva Mukti yoga is that it's, it's, it's called the rock and roll of, of um, the yoga world. It's to music. And, and I, I, you know, I've always culturally picked up the music wherever I've needed. And, you know, I still listen to Kate Bush or I still listen to David Bowie or I still listen to the Human League. But, you know, I'm, today, you know, I really, um, I'm absolutely fascinated by Christine and the Queen's. And I come back, I, I saw her quite recently uh, in All Points East. And just that whole strip back, the choreography, the meaning of, of what Chris is trying to do, what it, what it means um, culturally. Do you know her? No, I don't know her. No, no, no. I've never worked. I've, n- I've never worked with her. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I've just, it, it feels like I'm listening to something that could have been not as a sound, but as an expression, it could have been in the 80s and it could have been, you know, the first time I heard electronic music or it could be when I first heard, you know, or worked with David Bowie. It feels that kind of powerful that there's somebody in there that's breaking out to try to do and be somebody different. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's again, it's a big topic because it's music and there could have been a lot of different artists <laughs> in the cabinet. But I thought it was, you know, when I'm you know going to my yoga or I'm walking in the park or I'm traveling I'm coming back more and more and more to Christine and the Queens because I think it really helps me access a level of freedom that I guess so can we put a picture of her or I'll give you we'll have an album excellent
that sounds good all right thank you um anyone's hair that you haven't done yet who's who you'd like to do i mean i've been really fortunate that i've i've really worked with a lot of people that i um i've i've dreamt of working with um and you know things pop up all the time i think i think what i'm what I'm more concerned about today, what, what, what's my driving passion is to really, I, I mean, I launched the brand, the products um, just over a year ago. And I think I've learned more about hair color in that last 18 months than I did in, in the previous 28 or whatever. Really? So I, I'm really, I really want to connect with people that have got stories about what, what hair color means to them. That's nice. Um, all right, Josh, thanks so much. It was well, really you. fun to have you on the show. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.